this sutta I have um, chosen is all about mindfulness of the body because it is also something I have mentioned quite a number of times to do outside of meditation but this one is just part the body part of the four foundations of mindfulness and it's on its own just the um, mindfulness of the body and it gives all the different ways that the Buddha has taught how to use the body for meditation and also that it leads again into the jhanas and also how to use the body outside of meditation for mindfulness. In the Anguttara Nikaya, in the numerical collection, there's one saying of the Buddha which says, those who do not savor the deathless, they do not savor the deathless who do not savor mindfulness of the body. They savor the deathless who savor mindfulness of the body. They intend towards the deathless who intend mindfulness of the body. Now the deathless is just another name for Nibbana. So if one doesn't uh, intend or incline towards the um, mindfulness of the body, body, one does not incline towards Nibbana. So there are many things like that of the, of the Buddha. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jesus Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Again, in the same place. He lived there for 25 rains retreats, um, the three months of the year when the monks and the nuns were not wandering but stayed in one place and um, where he gave, because of that, many, many of the discourses. And so it was 25 years that he gave discourses at Jeta Grove and Anatta Pindika's monastery. A number of bhikkhus were sitting in the assembly hall where they had met together on return from their arms round after the meal was over. It was always a custom to um, get the food by going on arms round and it is still the custom in Buddhist countries but not in the cities so much but outside in the forest areas that go with the arms bowl and um, collect the food. We also did that in Sri Lanka, but we only, only did it once a week, not every day, because the people in our area were very poor. Now they met together when they had returned from their arms round. And it was being said amongst them, it is wonderful, my friends, it is marvelous how mindfulness of the body has been said by the Blessed One who knows and sees, Arahant and fully enlightened, to be of great fruit, great benefit when developed and repeatedly practiced. 
so they were talking about that amongst themselves. And then their talk, meanwhile, was left unfinished, for the Buddha rose from meditation when it was evening and came to the assembly hall and sat down on a seat made ready. And when he had done so, he addressed the bhikkhus thus, For what talk are you gathered here together? And what was your talk, meanwhile, which was left unfinished? So he wants to know what they've been talking about. It's quite interesting, actually. Um, The Buddha was fully enlightened, uh, one of the greatest spiritual masters that has ever um, been amongst humanity. And he put his attention on every detail that was happening amongst the nuns and monks that were in his uh, dispensation, in his order, every detail. And also the lay people who came to him and wanted to be his disciples, of which there were also a great many, he discussed with them the most minute details of their uh, private life which they asked him about. I mean, he didn't discuss it if they didn't want to know about it. But what they wanted to know about, he discussed everything with them. So one should never think that a, um, a great spiritual master is not um, able or willing to put his attention on the things which are concerned with our daily life. A daily life has to be in order also. In fact, if it isn't in order, the spiritual life doesn't function. It's the base on which one builds. It's like the foundation of this house. If this house doesn't have a foundation which is steady and solid, we're never going to sit up here in the second floor. It's all going to fall over. It's a solid foundation. Here, Venerable Sir, we were sitting in the assembly hall where we had met together and it was said amongst us, and then they repeated it, it is wonderful, friends, it is marvelous how mindfulness of the body has been said by the Blessed One who knows and sees, arahant and fully enlightened, to be of great fruit, of great benefit, when developed and repeatedly practiced. This was our talk, which was left unfinished, for then the Blessed One arrived. And how developed, because how repeatedly practiced is mindfulness of the body of great food, of great benefit? Now, he asks this question himself, and then he gives the answer also. So how is this done, and then he explains. How do we practice, and how does it, is it repeatedly practiced? So, the first thing that we can see here is that the mindfulness of the body has to be repeatedly practiced. And then it is uh, of great benefit. Now he says here, a bhikkhu gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, established mindfulness before him, just mindful he breathes in and mindful he breathes out. So the very first thing that is part of the mindfulness of the body is anapanasati, mindfulness of in-breath and out-breath. Now the uh, sentence, established mindfulness before him, is a little bit, um, well, one doesn't quite know before what, 
it is actually uh, mentioned in the commentary that sometimes it's translated mindfulness directed at the body or mindfulness occupied with the body so established mindfulness directed at the body then the word before him is not very um, uh, easy to know what, what could be meant by that so one breathes in and breathes out mindfulness mindfulness and breathing in long he understands I breathe in long breathing out long he understands I breathe out long breathing in short he understands I breathe in short breathing out short he understands I breathe out short now here again it's a cause for a great deal of confusion because people have sometimes understood or been told that it means that when one breathes in short breath or a long breath that one needs to well know it understand which means that one verbalizes it well that would be dreadful the verbalization of this is a short breath or this is a long breath would take away all concentration the only thing that it means is that one knows the breath one knows exactly one watches the breath so um, intently or so minutely that one knows exactly what kind of breath it is that's all one doesn't verbalize it or uh, make any um, comment on it it's not to be commented on it and he trains us I shall breathe in experiencing a whole body I shall breathe out experiencing a whole body now this is meant again that we have two different ways we can use the breath the first one is just watching it coming in and out whether it's whichever way it's coming in and out the other way is watching it go in all the way and coming out like following the sensations eh, of the of the breath all the way in all the way out the whole body he trains us I shall breathe in tranquilizing the body process he trains us I shall breathe out tranquilizing the body process well that's the third way where the uh, attention is given to the fact that one can actually relax relax not being tense not having any kind of um, ambition about it but relaxing the body having the body tranquil and with the breath knowing this relaxation of the body it's not being um, not letting the body flop down on the floor or anything like that but having a relaxed and uh, comfortable uh, body position so that it's um, that one feels really at ease 
which helps the mind to feel at ease. Now then he gives the simile very famous because this is the one of the most, or maybe the most famous Buddha, and this is the beginning of the most famous Buddha. Just as the skilled turner or his apprentice when making a long turn understands I make a long turn, or when making a short turn understands I make a short turn, so too breathing in long he understands I breathing long, long and he trains up. And then the whole thing is repeated. I'm trying to think what a turner is in German. Um, Es ist nicht ein Schreiner, sondern ein So then the verbalization if, a, if somebody is doing this as a as a as a um, skill, then uh, it's also not verbalized, but he knows exactly what how he is turning the lathe and uh, he's so careful of that turning of the lathe that he won't make a mistake and the same is with the, with the breath one has to be so careful that one knows exactly what one is doing and again with the, the, other, the, the other one experiencing the whole body and the third one the relaxation, the tranquilizing of the body and so he abides diligent, ardent and self-control now these three are constantly mentioned as characteristics of the meditator diligent, ardent and self-controlled self-controlled means that one of course one um, controls the um, thought processes and all that sort of thing so that one does stay with the meditation subject and that one diligent one keeps on doing it and ardent is actually uh, a passionate word that one is really enthusiastic about it if one is ardent about something it means one is enthused about it and now comes an interesting one which is absolutely essential the memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned now whether one goes back to the household life or not makes no difference if one really wants to meditate one can't um, think and um, have the memories and have the plans, memories and plans, for what one's going to do in the worldly life. You have to get let go. With their ma- abandoning, the mind becomes settled, quietened, brought to singleness and concentrated. This is how a person develops mindfulness of the body. So we have the three different ways that he's mentioned here, there are many more as it goes on. And uh, obviously the, the thought of the past and the thought of the future has to be abandoned, so then the mind becomes settled. And now the next paragraph is um, about using mindfulness of the body outside of meditation when a bhikkhu when walking he understands I walk when standing understands I stand when sitting understands I sit when lying down understands I'm lying down 
or however his body is disposed, he understands accordingly. Now here again is the same word with understanding as was mentioned with long breath and short breath. Now obviously when one walks, one doesn't tell oneself, I'm walking. But with mindfulness, one is absolutely aware of the fact that one is walking. And one isn't having thoughts about extraneous matters, but one is concerned with walking. One is concerned with sitting, with lying down, whatever it may be. And that is the same with the short breath and the long breath. One doesn't say, I have a short breath, I have a long breath. One is concerned just with that, what is happening. Mindfulness is being fully aware of what is actually happening. And here it is with the body. Now the body is the most important, according to the Buddha, of the four mindfulness foundations. Because so much happens with the body, all the time, activities and um, movements, also because we can see it and touch it, which makes it quite, um, not only makes it a solid experience, but it makes it a provable experience. Now, sometimes if we watch the thought processes, they are so fleeting, we mightn't even be quite sure whether we really saw something or the other. And there's no way we can prove it. We don't usually have a tape recorder on, and if, we, if our thoughts wouldn't be recorded anyway on the tape recorder, it'd have to be talking it. But the movement of the body, it's so obvious that that's what's happening. If we don't know we did it, we go around looking for the keys and the, uh, we can't remember where we put our slippers and uh, we put things somewhere and they can't be found anymore. And so it's, it's so obvious that, that we don't need anybody to prove a thing to us. So this is, um, that's why the body is so important. But there's another reason why it's so important. Buddha doesn't say why it's so important, but there is another reason. Because we have such an identification process with this body. We can say that we don't think we are the body but there must be more to us than just the body but yet we still think this is me and until there is um, until there's a third experience of uh, the Nirvana even the second experience doesn't take that me thought away yet it has proven not to be true but it doesn't take it away permanently. So, people are very concerned about the body. We don't want to scratch it, we don't want to dirty it, we don't want it to be too thin or too thick or too tall or too short or too brown or too white. Or We have so many concerns about this body. And if anything is wrong with it, we run to the doctor or to the homeopath or wherever we like to go as a naturopath and we are quite willing to spend enormous amounts of money to get it back in order and everybody thinks it is perfectly normal and right well, it is perfectly normal and right but it doesn't help us to get rid of the idea that this is me so that's why mindfulness of the body is the most important aspect because we are so attached to it in fact the Buddha says we are infatuated with it our essential desires are all based on body. 
because our sense um, doors are all bodies. So this is a very important aspect of it. So he, he uh, over and over um, emphasizes body. As he abides thus diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes settled in himself, quietened, brought to singleness, and concentrated. This is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body. This refers to the knowing of walking, standing, sitting, lying down. Again, one must let go of the memories of the past, the men and the hopes for the future, and settle the mind down and be quietened because one is mindful. It's impossible to have memories of the past and hopes for the future if one knows that one is walking. One cannot do two things at the same time. Either one knows one is walking or one's planning what one's going to do next week. It's either one or the other. Now, now again, the next thing is again about uh, mindfulness in daily life. Again, bhikkhus. A bhikkhu is one, so now the Buddha says, a monk is one who acts. All the other aren't monks. They're just people in robes. A monk is one who acts in full awareness when moving to and fro. Who acts in full awareness when looking at and away who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending, flexing and extending, who acts in full awareness when wearing the patched cloak, bowl and robes, who acts in full awareness when feeding, drinking and supping. supping. This is a new translation, supping. Who acts in full awareness when evacuating the bowels and making water, which is supposed to mean urinating. Who acts in full awareness when walking, standing... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the English is a bit peculiar. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. So, now the Buddha mentions here uh, numerous things that one has to be aware of and mindful of. One of is falling asleep. Mindfulness when falling asleep. It's very interesting to do that. To make, first of all, the first thing is that one makes up one's mind, I am now going to fall asleep. And put oneself in a position which one knows is the one for falling asleep. And knowing that, that also needs mindfulness. Then closing one's eyes, or knowing the eyes are closed, and then actually knowing, it's a very interesting situation, knowing that the thoughts are now sort of closing down. It's like putting down the shutters. I guess if you're closing the shutters on a house, the thoughts are going away. And knowing that moment when falling asleep is very difficult. One has to be so alert to it that one may not be able to do it because falling asleep is a matter of 
no longer being alert. So one watches the thoughts sort of disappearing and knowing now I'm going into sleep. So very, very nice actually. Very, very pleasant because it's very soothing uh, experience. How about being mindful of waking up? Usually one's already up when one is, when one is becomes, when, if there's any chance of being mindful, one's already up. But what is happening actually is also very interesting. Very many people have as their first thought when waking up, oh goodness, it's at that time again. Or I'm sure the alarm is too early or something like that. But in fact, the first thought should be, the first recognition should be waking up, opening eyes. And very often, if you can watch that in the morning, there's a lot of other thoughts before that. There's a thought of, well, I don't really want to get up and uh, it's uh, too early and uh, it's still dark and uh, it's... um, Yeah. (laughs) All sorts of ideas in the mind instead of that one which really matters. I'm waking up. I mean, that's the real truth. The other things are ideas. They're all projections about what one likes and what one doesn't like. Complete projections. But the real truth of the matter is I'm waking up. That's all there is to it. And if I have my mind on, I'm waking up. I can't have those other projections. There's no way you can't do two things. So, that is the important one. Now, talking, keeping silent, wearing one's clothing, eating, drinking, going to the toilet, looking at and looking away. Now, that is not so much of a physical movement, but it is, of course, a sense contact. So he's using that also as a bodily mindfulness. It's um, not an easy thing to be aware and uh, mindful of all of these things. Because they happen in very uh, close proximity. There's so much happening with the body that sometimes it's just already passed before one can become aware of the fact that one hasn't even noticed it. It's very interesting to be alert to that because then one becomes aware of how many of the body movements one misses. How many of the intentional body movements one hasn't even noticed that one has had the intention and then done it. Especially noticeable at times when one can't remember where one has put things. It's very noticeable then that one hasn't paid any attention. The mind was somewhere entirely different. Um, When one bumps into furniture accidentally, one hasn't noticed how one has gone. Uh, All these things are 
very useful to wake one up to the fact that mindfulness was not there. Sometimes one doesn't even wake up then. So, accent full awareness when moving to and fro, here and there. And it's interesting that the Buddha said a, a bhikkhu is one who does that. As he abides thus diligent, ardent and self-controlled, his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes settled in himself, whitened, brought to singleness and concentrated. This is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body. So there are two instructions, or uh, two paragraphs of instructions of doing it outside of meditation, which are concerned with everything we do, all the movements. We could say that the whole thing is just about that. And then there was one which had three instructions about the meditation. Now, now we get other meditations instructions. As Vico reviews the same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair as full of many kinds of filth. Thus, in this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, nipples, membranes, that's it, membranes, spleen, lungs, bowels, large gut and small gut, gorge, dung, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints and urine. These are supposed to be the 32 parts of the body, which are always 31. And now he gives a, a, a simile of this, which actually is probably the simile that gave me the idea with the zipper. Well, obviously the Buddha didn't talk about the zipper, and in those days they didn't have it. Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends, full of many sorts of grains, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet and white rice, and a person with clear eyes had opened it and would be reviewing it thus. This is hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, white rice. So too, a bhikkhu reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair. Otherwise, looks inside and sees, sees all these bits and pieces. So in our modern language, I thought it was more understandable instead of all these things we do, might not even, I mean, I personally do not know what hill rice looks like. I do know what red rice looks like, and also know what it tastes like. And <laughs> plenty of it. <laughs> but um, I thought it would be more understandable if we took a zipper and opened the body up and took all the bits and pieces out. And again, the same paragraph, one abides diligent, ardent and self-controlled and doesn't think about the past and about the future. Uh, so that's one insight method, right? The first three that were mentioned about the breath are the methods for calm. This one is the first method for insight. Again, a bhikkhu used the same body, however it is placed, consisting of elements. In this body there's the earth element, water, fire and air element. And now he gives the simile. Just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice 
had killed a cow and they were seated at the four crossroads with it, cut up into pieces. So too, however it is placed, however disposed of equal reviews with same body, or uh, consisting of elements. Thus, in this body, there's earth, water, fire, and air element. So they had this cow is cut up into pieces, so that it wasn't no. At some places, it's more um, in more detail. It's no longer a cow when it's cut up into bits and pieces. It's beef. And the same with uh, a person when one sees oneself as as consisting of those four elements, one doesn't see that person. One sees earth, fire, water, and air element. And this is exactly what the um, idea is behind it, so that we get a little bit rid of this identification uh, system that we have, which is strictly an idea. It has has no... um, reason for it or any proof of it I mean who can prove that there is a me sitting inside this body nobody but everybody thinks there is it's a um, worldwide delusion or world worldwide contract one could say everybody thinks there's a there's a me sitting there and nobody can prove it it's an amazing situation. And the Buddha is the only spiritual master that has ever uncovered it in this rational and strictly pragmatic way. It has been said by all the mystics of all religions, but in such language that one always had to think, at least uh, I believe that, that, one, that most people would think, that this is only for very special people to have enormous um, experiences where the I or the me emerges into something else. But here the Buddha says, well, you know, you cut up a cow into bits and pieces, you don't want to have a cow. What you have, you have probably a, a thigh and you might have a, a, a breast or you have that and this. But and if you do that with a person, what you have is the element. And if you see yourself as the element, it's a really interesting thing. Really see oneself as the element, not just intellectually. Of course, the intellectual part comes first. If we wouldn't understand this language that we're speaking, and if we didn't understand what it meant, as I have already explained, what it meant, these elements, we wouldn't know what to do. But now, having understood the intellectual part, and this is the important aspect for the spiritual part, part, to be able to translate the intellectual understanding into the experiential knowing. And some people have a hard time with that. And some people find it easy. It's an, uh, it must be the way one has been using one's mind. Because the one sees oneself, for instance, as these elements. One can do that right now without even meditating. It's just, there's just this, these elements, that's all. And for one moment, the me thought can go. It's just elements. 
but not everybody can do that. But it's not actually a feeling which arises. It's an an inner knowing. I don't know if that's clear enough, but that's what best I can do with it. Um, and now come the famous channel ground meditation. Channel ground meditation. Channel ground is a is a something we don't have. <laughs> it's a place in the open where uh, dead people are cremated. And uh, in Sri Lanka, um, yeah, maybe at hundreds of them. In India, thousands of them. Very easy to see. And when people are cremated, then of course not everything burns. So you always find remains lying about. And of course in the India of the Buddha, there was nothing else except that. There weren't uh, any funeral parlors or mortuaries, which nowadays, of course, they also have in India and in Sri Lanka, but the channel ground is still there. In fact, I remember the road that leads down to Nantes Island, uh, going down with the bus, and there's at least uh, 25 of them on the way there. So. Um, and these are different ways now of seeing oneself dead. It again has exactly the same intention to get rid of this body identification because essentially the body will never be a satisfactory vehicle. It can't be. It, um, it gets sick. There isn't a single body in the world that doesn't get sick sometime or other toothache, headache, backache, tummyache, um, and worse, measles, mumps, and the rest of it, uh, and cancer, lung disease, heart disease, and all that. And the Buddha said, not that the body has cancer, but he said the body is a cancer. So it's a, it's a growth. And because the body can never be totally satisfactory, not because only it gets sick, but it decays, it ages, and it dies. And then it just disappears. It's finished in the end. So it's never a satisfactory vehicle. And yet, in the world, it is the thing that is most attended to. If you read one of these... uh, glossy magazines, which I had occasion to look at the other day, it's all about body. The whole thing, from beginning to end, and and, uh, it's got to be young, and it's got to have a certain shape, and it's got to look this way, and it's got to have certain kind of hair, and uh, uh, certain kind of clothing, and it's got to do certain things. It's all body, the whole thing. Uh, And there's pictures and everything and then of course people who don't have those such bodies they read this avidly because this is you know (laughs) this is the the epitome of where you ought to be some of the people are probably that are in there probably um, 
better than what they're made out to be, but I mean, it's ridiculous. So because of this, because of this uh, um, deluded way we're looking at our bodies and ourselves, the Buddha has again and again advocated the um, knowing of ourselves as as dead. Because we must must, uh, remember that this is very short-lived. I mean, six score and ten is uh, the uh, ordinary lifespan. And um, I've just got over two years to go. So, I mean, it's nothing, you know. It seems like it was yesterday. So um, that started. And no, there's no guarantee that one is going to be six score and ten. None whatsoever. I love to go to old cemeteries, uh, really old ones. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know. It's, I don't know whether it's a, um, it's a sort of interesting to see. Sometimes whole families are lying together, and I've read the tombstones many times, and you find people lying there that are one day old and you find people that are 120 and especially on, in old cemeteries and then you find lots and lots of them that are 35 and 45 and 56 and 49 and anything, anything at all from one day to 120 and I'm sure none of them knew when it was going to happen so it's not a very um, a safe situation one thinks of it, it's happening to somebody else. But it isn't. It's us. And we've been doing it so many times. It's probably us lying in these, under these tombstones. Some people actually find the right tombstone too. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, as though before here, we're looking at bodily remains thrown on a charnel ground, one day dead, two days dead, three days dead, and it changes, you know. If you throw the body on the charnel ground, especially in the hot climate, uh, from one day to two days to three days, it starts looking worse and worse and worse. Um, bloated. That's the first thing that happens. I don't see it. First thing is it bloats then livid and oozing matter and then all the openings of the body all the inside uh, liquid comes out and thus this body too is of such a nature this one here is of such a nature it will be like that it is not exempt from that now the Buddha says as though one was was looking at in other words he doesn't say one goes he does say that too one goes to the charnel ground. Now, we would have a hard time doing that. I mean, there aren't any charnel grounds. And in the uh, cremation, the cre- uh, crematorium, they don't let you in. So, I mean, there's no way we could see it. But <coughs> we, our imagination would, I'm sure, be sufficient to think of ourselves one day dead, two days dead, three days dead. Um, when you get to Bangkok uh, song, in Wat Bovan, there is a, a little museum in the uh, in the uh, it's the biggest uh, temple uh, biggest biggest monastery in Bangkok 
no difficult to find. It's on Trasomero Road, Watbovan, and it has a little museum. And on the second floor of the museum, they have a um, like a 3D display of a body dead one day, two days, three days, and so on. In fact, they are real bodies, but they have been uh, sort of um, preserved so that one can see it. So it's very interesting, really. To to have a to see a dead body or a skeleton, dead body. Yes. Um, well, go to that museum. It it's really it really has has an impact. I mean, I was there once, and I'm this is many years ago, and I've never forgotten. It's really it's a body fished out of the river, and um, because many of the poor people kill themselves in the river in Bangkok, and it has little notices underneath how old the body is and where they found it. It's really, really fascinating to see. Yes, Prasomero Road. Everybody knows where what Bovan is. It's where the Sangaraja lives. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I knew you'd love this, that's why I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was really, um, at the very beginning of practice, this is many years ago when I was there, but I was I mean, really fascinated by it because I thought, geez, this is what we're going to look like. I mean, the first thing looked, he was purple. The first thing was really purple black. He was being fished out of the river after he'd been there a day or so. It was purple black color. And uh, I mean, it, in the end, it doesn't look at all human, you know. It's just matter. It's just matter, that's all. No, it's nothing to it except matter. So then, hmm? no, that you don't get there because <laughs> it's behind glass. <laughs> so where were we? Ah, yes. Now, Bhikkhu judges this same body as though he would be looking at bodily remains thrown on a charnel ground being devoured by crows, kites, vultures, dogs, jackals, and the multitudinous kinds of worms. Thus, this body too is such of such a nature, it will be like that, it is not exempt from that. Now, these kind of animals, that they do, um, they would take dead bodies, but Usually what one sees, and what you would see there also in that uh, little museum, is um, maggots, maggots. The one that is shown there is the body uh, where the maggots uh, are eating because after it has been for a day or so, well maybe two or three days, um, first it gets discolored and then it's um, bloated and then all this 
matter is oozing out the, the uh, everything or the um, liquid out of the body and then the maggots come and start eating the body the body doesn't mind the body has nothing it doesn't feel a thing you know, just matter matter and uh, if one feels disgusted by such a thing one must meditate on it because it is just a body that's all there's nobody sitting inside that body saying this is me this is all just an idea we've got in the head it is quite amazing I've often wondered and many have wondered I mean many ask them to do why, where, why does this start this crazy idea that this is me where did this come from it doesn't make sense and his answer has always been he was asked this you know, in, in different words but like that his answer has always been it's because we are attached to the five aggregates we want to keep them we ha- that's where the me thought arises from that's why they're called the pancha upadana khandas the five khandas of clinging the five aggregates of clinging we want to keep them we always have this mistaken idea that we're going to be really happy with them and nobody's ever been happy with them nobody can ever be continually happy with this body nobody can ever be continually happy with this mind I mean an unenlightened one enlightened one, sure, there's no problem so, it will be that with the maggots hmm? Now, then the bhikkhu judges the same body as though he were looking at bodily remains thrown on a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews. And he thinks this body too is of such a nature it's not exempt from that. And then he sees a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood and held together with sinews. And then he sees a skeleton without flesh and blood still held together with sinews and then the same body as though it was bones without sinews scattered in all directions so as long as the skeleton has some sinews to hold it together it's still sort of in the shape like the picture we had here it still looks like a person only a skeleton person like a stick person but when the sinews are gone then we have bones without sinews a hand bone, a foot bone, a shin bone a thigh bone, a hip bone, a back bone a rib bone, a breast bone an arm bone, a shoulder bone a neck bone, a jaw bone, a tooth bone and then the skull and then he thinks this body too is of such a nature it will be like that, it's not exempt from that that's why I said when you take the bits and pieces out take out the skeleton, the, the bones too the skin, and take them all, make them all in separate heaps and put them all nicely together there and so then you see that it's just bones huh? we don't have to have this um, that means without, the, without being held together now these are all the different kinds oh no, we've got some more just a minute um, then one sees the same body as, as if we were looking at bones bleached white the color of shells now then as they've been lying outside of course they get bleached white we wouldn't have this in our country it would never happen but we can see um, animal bones lying there on the back of the house um, and then 
bones heaped up more than a year old and then bones rotted and crumbled to dust now those animal bones are, more, are already rotting and getting to dust they're not quite dust yet but they're rotting and again he thinks if body tools of such a nature will be like that it's not exempt from that I'll just see these are the different ways to look at the body and actually one of the ways that is um, recommended is to see this progressively first one sees and one sees oneself like that it's really effective because and you will see right in a moment why it's so effective and how it's so effective not why how um, first the body is dead one day and then it starts getting bloated and discolored and then oozing and then you have the maggots and then after that you can see that the um, after it's got, been eaten by the maggots then you can see that there's a skeleton and the skeleton still has flesh and blood on it and then you see a skeleton that doesn't have flesh and blood on it but it's still held together you still see the person because the sinews are there holding it together and then you see this without the sinews it means you just see the separate bones lying about and then you see that the bones are getting very light in color because they're lying outside and then after they've gone all white in color then they start crumbling and as they got crumbling from dust to dust and that's the end of that which I've been so carefully preserving and looking after and washing and cleaning and uh, thinking about and worrying about and taking to the doctor and the dentist and the optometrist and, and all the rest of it <laughs> gone with the wind <laughs> it's, um, uh, it's recommended to do that in that progression and if one does that more than once the first time it can be an intellectual exercise or it can be like looking at a um, you know sort of pictures picture gallery but if one has done it several times it sinks in that this is exactly what I'm going to be okay today I'm not like that but maybe tomorrow and then within a week or two weeks the rest of it and maybe the bones take a little longer so now having seen all this as he abides us diligent ardent and self-controlled his memories and tensions based on the household life are abandoned with their abandoning his mind becomes settled in himself quietened brought to singleness and concentrated this is how Bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body so we see that we have insight methods which were the parts of the body the elements and the uh, channel ground meditations and we have the calm meditations which are on the breath but the interesting part is immediately after the meditation on one's own death and the body crumbling to dust comes because quite secluded from sensual desires secluded from unprofitable dhammas unprofitable mind thought but mind space <coughs> He enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial and sustained application 
with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. So this shows quite clearly that one can go into first jhana and all the following ones which are coming then either through insight method or through calm method. In fact, there are people who can only do it through the insight method. Their mind is too um, analytical and too much thinking. Uh, they need to see this very um, impermanent person lying dead maybe or consisting of bones and then the mind settles down and becomes quiet and becomes concentrated and goes into first jhana which does not uh, preclude that some people can do it very nicely with the breath their mind is not that analytical not that easily agitated doesn't think so much and they can do it on the breath but some may have to use it so either way whether we do the inside path, the inside method, or the calm method, it all winds up in the jhanas. It doesn't matter where. And also, through reading, uh, I have found that in all traditions of the five great religions, sorry, I didn't find it in Judaism, and for four great religions, there are any state, Um, the uh, any of the states that are mentioned that are um, other than ordinary are all jhana states uh, sometimes first, second, third, sometimes higher states all given different names and it is again and again quite clear uh, from all this that the human mind progressively and naturally goes into these levels of consciousness. It's a totally natural way to go. And all eight jhanas are still mundane, are still worldly. They are not transcending, they are not transcendental, the worldly life. They are worldly states, according to the Buddha, which lead us to the super-mundane. The super-mundane is that where we can then uh, have the path and fruit. They lead us there, but they are not it themselves. And they are existing in all traditions, and very often they really lead to the letting go of this self-idea because of the experience, which is a very natural way of doing it, because the experience shows quite clearly that there isn't anybody there, one is able to let go of this illusion of the self. So this happens in all traditions that have written about the uh, mystical state or spiritual state. And here we have a very interesting explanation and it is done in in this particular sutta. It is um, um, very nicely explained with very nice similes about the jhanas, which we'll do tomorrow, because the similes are very uh, descriptive of what, um, well, not so much of what it feels like, but the similes are very descriptive of one's own um, way of dealing with the jhanas. Very nice uh, similes. The Buddha was a master 
at using very ordinary everyday similes for the most exalted states of mind and that's uh, because of that easily understandable and also because of that we can see that it's nothing special that's just the way the mind works and the more and the longer I teach the more it becomes obvious that this is the way the mind works it just needs a little nudge and say well this is what you do and there it goes and that's the human mind doing that so we can use either the calm approach through the breath three ways of using the breath are mentioned or we can use the inside approach and if we use the channel ground as one of the methods although the channel ground gives several methods but if we use it as one of the methods then there are also three methods mentioned parts of the body element and channel ground either one of them and they all lead to the jhanas because if we don't think of the future the planning and we don't think of the past what we did the memories the mind has to quieten down and having quietened down it gets concentrated on one point so tomorrow we shall continue with that now any questions Yeah, huh? No question. <laughs> and you see that some, many people do find um, a certain reluctance in themselves to look at their dead bodies in that type of way, which means that the intoxication, identification, with their own body is still so strong that they can't bear to think of it as being eaten up by maggots or consisting of bleached bones or anything like that or livid or oozing matter or whatever but it is the truth and the Buddha's intention was to show us the truth so that we would no longer live in a fantasy world but in a true world where we could leave this kind of world of the human realm behind us one day and don't have to go through this misery of being born, aging, decaying and dying again this is what he saw as Dukkha so if we have any reluctance that is what we need to do and if we don't have any reluctance we should do it too <laughs> so that is recommended by the Buddha Please put the attention on the breath. Think of yourself as being filled 
the beautiful light golden in color filling you with warmth surrounding you with love giving a sense of well-being sense of security safety Think of yourself as being only that And now let that light, full of love and warmth, shine on the person nearest you. So that that person can feel that light containing love and warmth. Now let this beautiful golden light shine on everyone here, bringing love and warmth to everyone. this light shine on the surroundings, the environment around here, the trees, the bushes, the animals of the forest, the birds, the lizards, the ants, the wallabies, the snakes, and the spiders. Let the light shine on all of that, bringing love and warmth. Make the light larger, 
let it shine further gently increasing its scope its distance bringing love and warmth to all beings in its path keep increasing it extending further and further outward to people in the towns cities on the land the whole of this country further and further the oceans, other countries, the whole of this globe beings everywhere being touched by the beautiful golden light of love and warmth Now think of anyone whom you especially would like to give love and warmth to. Let your beautiful golden light shine on that person. Giving happiness, giving joy. Think of anyone who you think particularly needs some love and warmth. Let your golden light shine on that person. Think of the many people who are lonely There's no one who really cares about them who may be sick maybe very poor 
let the golden light with love and warmth shine on those people golden light so large like the sun in the sky filling the universe with love and warmth moving all creatures Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the warmth and the love that is generated within your heart. Be that warmth and love. Be the golden light. Feel the joy that comes from that. May there be a love and warmth in all beings' lives. 